0: Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through the industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Kim Hammer, HR consultant and sought after public speaker. Welcome to the show, Kim.
1: Thank you so much, AJ. I am so very excited to be here. I noticed that Uh, I've watched a lot of your videos on YouTube, and I noticed that you tend to really focus on marketing and supporting people in those areas. So I'm really honored to be here to talk about this topic today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I talk about those things because it is part of business of life. But what you talk and do about is much more related to life itself. (laughs) And we'll be focusing on that, you know. So we'll be talking about 100 Acts of love. Tell us about this. I know you, uh, this great thing came up after a lot of your own personal grief that you had to tackle. But tell us about this whole thing of 100 acts of love. Let's know about your story and how you are making a difference to so many people's lives, you know, by even at the same time dealing with your own grief long, long back.
1: Well, thank you so much. Yeah. You know, the best things, as we say, don't usually don't learn a lot from great things that happen to you. You learn a lot from the bad things that happen to you. And um, I always start the story with uh, my husband um, was diagnosed with a stage four cancer. And at the time he and uh, we were, we were on an, we were trying to get to see a doctor who was um, very good at treating this kind of cancer, but we couldn't because we did, we were on an HMO and not this PPO. And, um, and so there had been a mistake when we signed up. And so someone who was working with my husband, who didn't, they didn't particularly get along. They weren't friends. Um, this person was working with my husband and he decided that he was going to make sure that we got on a PPO so we could see this doctor. And he went all the way up to the headquarters of this organization. This is a big, huge health insurance company. If I name them, you would know them right away. Um, and he went all the way up and he had it switched to a PPO. And as a result of his action, I really believe that he gave my kids extra time to know my husband because he, my husband, you know, was entangled with this cancer. He got better. And then the cancer came back and less than four months after his second diagnosis, he died. And our children at that time were 12, nine, and seven. If this man hadn't done what he had done to get us switched over to the PPO so we could get treated by this doctor, so that we could have the doctor who followed the latest treatment regimen, my kids, my husband would have died and my kids would have been four, seven, and nine. And the difference of the memories that my children have of their father is huge. It was such a gift. Um, And so while my husband was sick and after he died, what I noticed is some people knew exactly what to do and how to be really helpful, and other people didn't have a clue. And what I find right now is a lot of times people are very resentful of that. They're like, yeah, they didn't really help me. But what I realized is that those people who didn't help, it wasn't about that they didn't want to they were terrified and scared that they would do or say the wrong thing, and they didn't know what to do. So a couple of years after my husband died, I took the opportunity. I just had this idea, and I wrote this book, which is behind me. It's called 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss, and it has 100 really simple, easy things that you can do. Like You could open the book and pick up one tip and go take action on that one tip right away. So I did that because I wanted people to understand how important it is to support somebody through cancer or loss or really kind of any type of crisis. Now you fast forward and I go back to work and I go back into my chosen field as a people leader and What I find, of course, is I don't know why I was expecting something different, but all those people who didn't know what to do or what to say, well, they all have jobs and they all work in an office. And so when cancer or loss or death of an employee occurs, no one else, no one in the office really knows what to do or what to say or how to help, especially a manager. You know, a manager's responsibility is to... Help a team use discretionary effort, right? Effort that's extra effort, effort that it, that they want to use to be productive, to help the company and move the team forward. And when there is death, loss, and cancer, which happens every single day in an, in an office, managers are ill-equipped to understand how do I even talk to this person? Let alone how do I motivate my team? You know, how do I how do I help the employee deal with cancer and while they're being treated with cancer and do their best work? How do I help my team whose teammate just died in a car accident or just committed suicide, right? How do I help the team deal with, you know, we have an employee who's, who's, who's grieving the loss of their child. How do I help that employee? And how do I help the team through this? So that's where I launched my business. And so right now I focus on helping managers, understand the best strategies to support an employee dealing with cancer loss or depression being empathetic as well as productive and i think sometimes managers don't see and most times managers don't see how those two words actually do work really well together
0: right kim right Uh, i was just thinking about the time when your husband was not well and uh, somebody he his coworker, who perhaps was not his be- even perhaps his best friend, but he came forward and helped. And when family members and a lot of families are not able to understand things, are able to come forward. A lot of help can come from the places that one was at. And it is not that people are not uh, wanting to help, but they simply don't know what words they should choose. In such situations, it is indeed a very difficult situation. Not just from the person on the side of the person who is suffering, but also from the other side. Because they, in their workplace, they are always thinking of productivity and better profits and more results, and are not tuned to this situation. How did this come to your mind? Came exactly <laughs> that you. It was not easy for you. 2009, not very far away from now. You know, 16th April. 2009. You know, it is it is not so easy. How did you manage? Why I asked this question, Kim, is that a lot of people, when there is a loss in the family or somebody close, they lose. They seem to lose a lot of their attention about things. They don't. Yes. You know, and their whole focus is just to come out of that grief or to grieve fully. And then think of something else. You had... You were also another human being, another person who was who lost uh, her husband, that too, very young age at 44. Yes. How did you move beyond that and think of your children to take care of and set up something which would leave something for the future, something better for people to look up to a way out of the situation and not adding to what that was um, adding to problems that are already there at that present point in
1: time. Well, you know, it's really funny. So it's not very funny. I that back. Um, something I was listening to another podcast you did with a gentleman who was a voice coach. And you asked him, How do you get past stage fright? And his response was, You need to practice, right? And you need to just kind of have the courage. To practice over and over and over again. And I think that's what happens when, you know, the day after my husband died, I, for months after my husband died, I didn't know how I was going to survive this. I didn't know how I was going to raise our three children by myself. I didn't, you know, we lived across the country from our, from our immediate families. And so I had, you know, it was, I, I joke about it, but I really mean it. I literally, there were days I was like, okay, The first thing you, I'm awake. Okay, so what do you think you need to go do next? I should probably stand up. Okay, great. Stand up. Okay, stand up. Okay, now what do you think you should go do next? I think I have to go use the bathroom. Okay, great. Go use the bathroom. Now what do you think you should go do next? I should probably wash my hands. And now what? Oh, it's a school day. So I need to go pick up my children. It was literally moment by moment. I often say it's one pinky toe in front of the other pinky toe. I couldn't even get to one foot in front of the other foot. I had this focus on pinky toe. And I think that what happens when we are, you know, when we are watching someone who is going through that level of grief, it's uncomfortable. We are not good with death. You know, death is something that's unknown. And, you know, there are all different religions believe in all different things about what happens after death, but none of us know for sure. And so death is uncomfortable. And watching someone grieve or go through something like cancer depression is uncomfortable simply because we can't fix it. We can't take it away. We can't remove it from their lives. We can't even help them get through the day necessarily, right? That We know that it's all within themselves, that they have to find that intrinsic motivation to just move through one more day. And so we're often very uncomfortable because we don't know how to show up. What we don't realize is we don't have to do anything grand to show up. It's really about taking small action steps and taking something, a small thing off of their plate. So I often tell a story about my neighbor, Nate, and Nate lived down the street from us. And after my husband died, Nate wandered up to the house and he knocked on the door and he said, Hey, when was the last time time the oil was changed in your car? And I was like, don't know. Like, don't, I can't tell you even if the oil, I can't even tell you if the light is, is telling me, if the car is telling me that my oil needs to be changed. And he said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, leave the keys in the mailbox tomorrow, text me and I'll come up and I'm home all day tomorrow. I'll come up, grab the car and do that for you. And so the next day I go outside with my children and it's a mini, you know, it's a minivan. We get into the minivan and I start to cry because Nate didn't just change the oil of the car. He had the whole car washed inside and out and he had filled it with gas. And so with just that simple action, he had relieved me of so much pressure Because when we're in, when a person is grieving, they are not able to do, it takes a lot of energy to do the normal things that they used to be able to do. You know, calling up a friend is no problem when you're okay. It's really hard to do when you're grieving. Putting gas in the car is a really hard thing to remember to do when you're grieving, especially in the early stages of grief. And I'm talking, I'm not talking the first five days. I'm talking the first six months to the year. Your brain is gone. And so anything someone can do to to have the courage to step into that person's life and say, hey, I'm willing to change the oil in your car, so call me next time it needs to get done or you check in with them. Or, hey, I've got an extra few minutes and an extra few bucks. Let me take your car down to the gas station and get it filled. Or if you're at work, hey, I know that you often put together these agendas for the meeting. I'm happy to take that over for you this time. So being as specific as possible is such, a, and, and offering that kind of help is such a big relief. And I think we forget how important we are in the person's life who's grieving. And we don't have to show up, like I said, in this big kind of grandiose way. It's taking simple actions that remove, that relieve them of some simple things that they normally do just until they can get back on their feet. That's really powerful. And that's why I'm here today. That's how I survived it. Because people kept showing up and doing simple little things for myself and our kids that allowed me to kind of just take, allowed me to feel lighter when I put that pinky toe in front of the other pinky toe.
0: Right, Kim, right. Now, the situation that you are in, the type of mindset at that point in time is, what, and through you, I want to get answers for other people who are grieving and how people can actually help them is that what is it that a person who is grieving expect from others? Is it Mm. those acts? Now, Nate, he started with that example. Others came in. But a lot of people, different cultures, people are, they act very differently. They show their things. Some people are very, uh, you know, very emotionally. They want to show, but they don't know how to show That they are there so what from a person who is grieving what are their expectations not maybe the right word but what is it that they want from others at that point in time when they themselves don't know what to do when at at that stage how does it work how do people come into that you know us is a much more formal society if i understand though friendships in friendship you can be informal but How do people come beyond that level of defense of formality and get into the place where they can actually help for those who actually want to be there, want to help friends, family, neighbors, whoever it is?
1: Well, I think the first thing is do not expect the person who is grieving to tell you what to do. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. People are like, oh, I'll wait. They'll tell me what they need to do and then I'll go do it. Look, if it's this first first person's time grieving, they have no idea what they need and no idea how uh, the kind of help that they need. So I think that's that's one of the biggest mistakes that's made is people just think that they're going to wait for the grieving person to tell them what to do. Um, I think the second thing is for you as the person who wants to help, put yourself in their shoes and then go from there. So in America, you know, taking some type of, um, I, I call them helping superpowers. We're all really good at helping in some way. There are things that we enjoy doing on our own that, that, that can actually benefit the person who is grieving. Um, so, For instance, I mean, I don't know um, what it's like, you know, in your country, but here, you know, if you go, maybe you want to bring food to the person, which is actually something I don't recommend here because everyone else is already doing it. The only difference, I, the only time I do recommend it is if you want to bring food in months three or four or five after, after loss, because that's when a lot of the help dries up. People come in for the first thirty days, the first three months, and they're very helpful, and then people start to disappear and go back to their lives. So if you do want to bring food, bring food at six months, bring food at seven or eight months after loss. Um, I don't know that there are any I think that the the main thing that is the most helpful to any grieving person is to sit with them and allow them to grieve. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to tell them that it's going to be okay. Don't try to tell them that, you know, don't, 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 don't think about, oh, well, just think about happy thoughts about the person who's lost, who, who's gone. Let them grieve, let them cry, let them tell the story of the loss over and over and over again. That's what brings the most comfort to them because they're still trying to make sense of what just happened in their lives. They're still trying to understand that that person who they saw yesterday, two days ago, a month ago, six months months ago that person who they took up this space in their life is not going to take up the same kind of space anymore and they're still trying to wrap their heads around it. So I think that's the that that's the thing. And if you're the griever, you know, it's if people please know that people want to help you. They really do. They don't know what to say or what to do. And this is where you can have a few close friends, one, even one friend who you and that friend can sit down and think about all the different ways that people can help you. Um, and then that friend can be responsible for sharing it with other people so that they can come in and support you.
0: Right, right, Kim. Now, you know, you have focused more on the Office side of the work side. Uh, oh, does it also uh, include how neighbors or family and all other people uh, should uh, help at that point in time? If not, or if yes, I don't know that answer. I'll know from. You. But why? Why just the office? Because the immediate ones are the closer ones, and that the reason I ask here is that. You talk about three steps to getting the support you need if you have cancer. Now, every office is still a bit far away, even though it is, if it can exist in the way you desire or you have asked, you have mentioned in your book how they can help. But what about the person itself? I know it is very difficult for people to approach and they will approach or not approach perhaps. Runaway people run away from difficult situations a lot many times That's the practicality of life or that is the diminishing milk of human kindness perhaps that we have come to this is today's world so we got to accept that fact amidst this world how does a person who is grieving who they can get the support if they have cancer.
1: So, I mean, I think that the the main thing is, that there's two things. Well, the reason I focus on work so much is because I find that managers, you know, unless they're on the C-suite and they're getting coached, and even if they're getting coached, they don't know what to do. And a manager has a huge effect on the team. What the manager says or doesn't say makes a big impact on how the team will deal with an employee dealing with cancer, loss or depression. And so that's why I focused on that area because I wanted to give the managers the opportunity to get this manager training or coaching, you know, so that they can understand how to do it. But the beauty of what I teach managers is they can take what I teach them and and they can take what they teach the team And they can then use that in their personal lives. There's really sort of a a beautiful overlap because, you know, we, most of us work and, you know, whether we have a, a neighbor who has cancer or a friend who has cancer or our partner has cancer or we have cancer, we still show up at work and so you you can do that overlap for sure i think you know I, i'm going to say if you really if you're really feeling really lost and not sure what to do jump on amazon or ju- come to my website at 100 actsoflove.com and buy the book you know it's a really it's it was meant to be a really quick read i'll even show you yes please. i i don't like to go through to read paragraph after paragraph after paragraph to you know to find the one tip in it so what I did was I made it a really easy to read book. So here, let's say you, 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 you open up the book. You're like, what do I do? Well, actually, act of love number 52 says fill her car with gas. So you read right. that. You go, oh, I can do that. You can read that as a manager and you can walk up to that employee and say, look, I know that we don't know each other very well, but if you would like a team member to fill your car with gas tomorrow, you let me know and we'll make it happen. Right? And so what happens is that employee feels like they're being seen. They feel like they what they're going through is being acknowledged. The team feels like they actually have a way to support the person who they care about a great deal in most cases. And then the manager feels like they're giving the team the opportunity to support the employee. Um So you know, if you're really feeling really lost, go to Amazon or come to my website and buy the book. Um, something I often say that I think is really important that people overlook. One of the most common phrases that people say is, if you need anything, let me know. Now that initially sounds really helpful, but there are four reasons. It's actually one of the worst phrases you can utter. The first thing is when you're going through a crisis, whether it's a, whether it's when you're going through a change, whether it's a big change or a good change or a bad change, you want people to acknowledge it. You want people to say, I see you. So basically what you want to do is you want to say, I am so sorry this is happening to you. You want to acknowledge it. When you say, if you need anything, let me know. You're not acknowledging what's happening. You're jumping immediately into action. And there's nothing wrong with action, but the kind of action that you're offering isn't very helpful. The second reason it's not helpful is, AJ, what's anything? Like if you and I were friends six 14 years ago or 13 years ago, would you be willing to take your really nice brand new car up to the preschool and pick up my vomiting son? Is that anything? Or did you mean that you'd be willing to just drop off, uh, you know, some some really sweet dessert for myself and my children? Anything is too big a word. The third reason it's not helpful is now you're putting the pressure on the person who is already stressed out with whatever is happening in their lives to take apart their day and find the one thing. And the fourth reason it's not helpful is you are asking a person who is feeling extremely vulnerable, who doesn't wanna ask you to do something that they know is gonna cause a little extra stress in your life. You're asking them to figure out what one thing you might be able to do and then to ask you to do it. And AJ, you and I may be great friends, and I know what I what I need, to, and I, even if I think about what it is I need, I'm going to be really hesitant to ask you to do it because I know it's going to put a damper on your day and, and it just doesn't feel good. So when you say that phrase and you don't get a response, those are the four reasons you don't get the response. The most important thing you can do, the best thing you can do is to be specific on what you're willing to do and to offer more than once. And y'all, that takes some thought, right? I am not going to volunteer to pick up someone's vomiting child, not my bag, but I am a really good grocery shopper. And if there's an item in the grocery store that you need that the grocery store doesn't have, I will make sure that the grocery store orders it and I will be there when that truck pulls in in the morning and has that and pulls it off the truck. That's, that's what I happen to be good at. So it's really understanding. It's taking a moment to breathe and to think about what it is that you're really good at, what it is that you like doing, what it is that feels, comes really natural to you. And then offering some type of version of that to the person and offering more than once. Because that person who's dealing with this issue, they're not going to remember that you offered one time. So you need to offer more than once. And when you do that, what you're signaling to the person is, one, I care about you. Two, this is the specific thing I'm willing to do, and I really am willing to do it, and it's not a problem for me, so go ahead and and call. And three, you're signaling to them that you understand their situation. It's a very subtle signal, but you were telling them, I get it. I get that this is a hard journey. And so this is the one thing that I can do for you to make your journey a little bit easier. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, absolutely, Kim. And in fact, I saw that book and that phrase, uh, you know, about the gas. It makes more sense when I see it and understand it better. Then it becomes, you know, much more clearer to a person like me, what exactly can one do in such situations? So let's now move to the manager now. A manager who is in the office and a person who is grieving, either the loss of somebody very close, maybe because of cancer, or for what uh, for anything else. Second thing is the person who is himself uh, impacted with cancer. How do they go and tell these things, inform these things the first time to their manager? What should their expectation be? What?
1: That's a great what question. Is it-
0: that the right way they can say yes to their manager? Yes.
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So I have to focus on the U S cause that's what I know. Um, in the U S you do not have to reveal to your manager that you have cancer. You can say, I have something going on that I'm going to need some few days off a week. Now they're probably going to guess, but you don't have to reveal that. So from the, from the employee point of, from the employee point of, point of view, you don't have to reveal everything. However, if you have a close relationship with your manager, this isn't a great opportunity to, to get the support that you need because you're going to need support. If you're the manager, there are so I have something called the North Star strategy where I go through I have five specific steps that every manager walks through to support a grieving, and for instance, what you said, a grieving employee. the The first thing is knowing what to say. So I just told you one thing not to say, and there are there are four other things that I that I give people give away for free, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, never to say to anyone dealing with cancer or loss of depression, and what to say instead, because there are some common phrases we use all the time that are. Actually, really detrimental. The second thing we do is I have the managers do a little bit of writing and to talk about their own personal experience with, let's just say, death. So, what is their experience with death? And what are the stereotypes that they believe about grief? because we all come to the table with ideas of what death is, of what it means, of, of how you how you think you would move through the loss of somebody. And a lot of those times, if you don't have personal experience, those, those ideas, those stereotypes are informed by what you see on TV or what you saw your neighbor do. And they might be totally on point, or they might not be, but it's really important. You get super, super clear on what it is that you believe because when we come into a relationship and we have expectations, I have a mentor and I love this. He says this saying all the time. He says, expectations are resentment under construction. So when I expect you, AJ, to show up at my house with some sweets and you don't do it, I then begin to resent you. But the problem is... You don't know that I have that expectation. And I didn't tell you that that was my expectation. And so you're kind of like, why is she mad at me? I'm really angry. You have no idea that, I'm, that I resent you right now because you didn't bring by the sweets that I expect you to bring because you've brought them around to other people at other times, right? So when you have an expectation of how your employee is supposed to behave and act in grief, you are setting up future resentments. The third thing I have managers do is to sit down and do an honest to goodness assessment of the employee situation and the work that the team and the employee are going through. This is so vital. Because if you if you just deal with what to say and your feelings and you don't take some time to figure out the situation, then you're going to take actions that are probably going to be harmful to to your team's productivity, to your reputation as a manager and to the employee who's dealing with with this loss, so it's really important that and and this and th- these steps go are the exact same steps you can follow if you're if you're a friend or if you're a parent of a grieving child or if you're a you know like these steps you can follow no matter what the situation. So really taking a moment to assess the situation, what projects is the person working on? How, you know, when you talk about grief, they're not going to be, that person grieving at work is going to be spacey. They're not going to be able to focus on their work a lot. They're going to be forgetful. Grief does some major things to the brain. So how do you set them up for success in the first month? And then how do you set them up for success in the second month and the third month when the grief is, starts to dissipate just a little? How do you help? How do you set the team up to support that person during their grief? what does the employee even want? Do they want people showing up at their house or do they prefer that no one does? So really getting and doing a deep dive into assessing the situation, which will then allow you to do steps four and five, which are taking really thoughtful, meaningful actions um, and then to assess what's going on and then to repeat.
0: Right, right, Kim. Now let us look at the dynamics here. One is the personality of the manager. Yes, that that would be some people are very good, but they are very introvert. They themselves don't know how to deal with the situation. And some people may be very good persons, but they are very bad managers. They just don't know how to manage situations. Second thing is the team dynamics. Now, everybody in the team, they have their own thought process about the thing. Everybody may not have the same level of empathy about things, about, about, the grief of somebody else about what another coworker is going through today's world is very different as i told before and there are many toxic workplaces which we yes. also know about you know about as, a, as an hr leader how does this pan out as, as again in terms for the manager we all know that everybody is good how does a manager uh, take care of things uh, Dealing with his own personality, his personality type. And secondly, also taking into consideration the team dynamics. Also such things will also need the support of management. A lot of management have different views about different things. If it's a startup, if it's a middle sort of a company or a bigger company, those things will change. A lot of things goes in the minds of the manager at that point in time. How do you tell them to deal with such things at the same time when an issue like this comes in front of them?
1: So that is a great question, AJ. And there's not a specific answer. It really depends on the team. Like you said, there's some managers who are introverts. There's some managers who are extroverts. There's some managers who are really good, who who run an an amazing team. The team works really well together. And there are managers where the environment is completely toxic. What I find is that most of the organizations that I work with, they are very people-centered. They understand that their people are, you know, or drive the business. And so they, they, they have cultural values that are passed down through the organization. Um, They have a leadership team that is very focused and lives and works in those cultural and in those values. So I haven't really had the opportunity to work with an extremely toxic environment because what I find is they don't want my services. They don't really care or they, they do care, but not enough to, to reach out. So so in, in those situations, I mean, I think the best thing a manager can do, look, this takes courage. This is not some management course that you go through that you, you know, check the box and you say, okay, I've done it. Now I'm going to implement these things. Having these kind of conversations, having a person on your team who is suffering and managing it well takes courage. Courage. And I think above anything else, that is the number one thing that a manager has to have. They have to say to themselves, this situation, I don't like this situation. I don't know what to do. There's got to be a better way to manage it and I'm going to go find it. Um, And so that's the thing that I, that's the number one key that I see across the board with the organizations that I work with. They have managers who have courage. Now I'm not talking about like, I've got courage and I'm going to go do this. Oftentimes their courage comes from I feel the manager saying to themselves, I feel awful. I feel like there's something I should be able to do and I don't know what to do and I'm really scared and I'm nervous and I don't want to mess this up. And so I got to find something. That's the kind of that's courage. That's courage motivated by fear, but that's courage. Um, And so I think that that's the thing that number one thing that I advise managers or or have the only people I talk to, the people who have courage, you say there's got to be something else out here. I cannot manage this team this way. I know that there's some way that we can we can be empathetic and productive at the same time. I'm going to go find
0: it. Right. Empathy is, is we are losing out on empathy a lot in many places. Not only in our personal life, not only in organizations, but everywhere. I guess, yes. I guess maybe we need that a bit more. Talking of, you know, such a situation came is the uh, that organizations tend to start thinking about money, how mm-hmm. if it may impact their, you know, uh, in terms of giving money to the employee who is facing this. One of the big things that comes in is the insurance part. I don't know how it works there, but. Uh, in in India and in several other places, there is something called organizations where uh, they there is something called group insurance, where they get the company uh, company's employees insured them as well as their family yes. members. I, I, if it's the same there, and it all de- it is all decided by the company itself as to what is the amount that they will get insured for as a family and how they can be utilized. If it's the same thing, if the managers or this issue comes in, and at, at that point in time, then this will become almost like a discussion. That listen, that uh, this amount is very less, and the company and the p- people who are suffering or may have to may need it. That amount is very less. At that point in time, company fears that loss of pace or do not want to spend more in term because they also know that. Whatever amount is there, if it is a very low amount, that time it will be discussed and they will have to go for bigger insurance amount if they are really serious about it. Many companies just do it because the law asks them to do it. How does it work there? How do you again deal with that, that situation where the management will not like to be exposed? The manager is a good person, but he also wants to keep his job. How yeah. do they still manage to help in a situation like that and be a truly good colleague
1: that is that's a really good question. Our insurance works a little differently here. It's tied to the organization so if so it you know you tend to get really good coverage when you're with the organizations it comes in most companies employees have to pay some amount out of pocket to to help the company pay for their cover their insurance um and so it's it's oftentimes <clears throat> excuse me. It's oftentimes not as big a deal here unless someone is out of work for three months. So we have this thing here where your job is protected for three months. Um, and then if you if you come back to work within three months, your organization has to give you either your job back or a job of similar and similar pay. Um insurance is a big deal when you're talking with a small organization and one person has cancer that will raise the insurance rates of the organization as a whole. Um, and so unfortunately, you know, it's, it's not left up to the manager. It's usually left up to the HR department and the C-suite, you know, the president's making decisions on what kind of coverage the organization is going to offer their employees. Um, but it does affect, you know, and a lot of employees, a lot of our employees will show up at work when they shouldn't be showing up at work because they're afraid that they're going to lose their insurance. Um, So it's not quite the same, but those are all factors that that a manager needs to be able to talk to someone about, right? So, so if, if I'm a manager in and, and your situation and I have an employee who has cancer and they only have this much and I, this employee is very important to me. They're very good at their job and I want to keep them. And so I need to, I need to have a plan in place to talk to my bosses about, okay, I want to increase how much we pay for him, but here's the proof of the work that he has done. And here's my plan to get him to come back, to get him to work. You know, to, to help out at work through the next six months, because the other thing I think we forget is just because someone has cancer doesn't mean they're not going to work. And in fact, because cancer treatments have advanced so much, a lot of employees can work through while they're getting cancer treatment. So So you as a manager, you have to have a plan. You have to have a, re, a concrete strategy that's going to prove to your bosses why this person is of value and why you know and how you can show that they're going to be doing the work that they're going to be doing but again it's really being able to understand it's really being able to have someone to talk to about it to discuss and so that you can with them develop this plan with with them and your employee to develop this plan that it, that you all agree to and are going to use moving forward and then it's about revisiting that plan and keeping everybody up to date it, up to date on how the plan is working
0: Right, Kim, right. I I just am curious to know how do you bring these conversations to the management, to the managers and talk about this aspect of, you know, uh, life that uh, has so much of, you know, grief for one and and, and, uh, expectation also, not in terms of a real monetary expectation, but in terms of a humanitarian expectation out of their offices and friends and family. How do you... Talk business amidst all these things and when when their their business is about helping others. How do you bring that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's it's to me, it feels really natural. If you can't like we you have to be empathetic and kind and thoughtful, and you also have to have good business sense if you're gonna do if you're gonna run a team and And I think it's really understanding look employee engagement is something we hear the buzzword all or all the time. People always talk about employee engagement um, and if you have a plan to engage your employees, if you are listening to what your employees are are wanting i'm not saying that you give them everything that they want, but you know what they want. You know what makes them happy. You make small incremental steps to give them some of the things that they know that they need. You let them know that you're making these incremental steps. You're building that trust. Then having empathy and being productive go hand in hand, right? It's it's about building that trust on your team um, it's about understanding, like, look, it's, it's about saying to people on your team, not everyone's going to get everything that they want. Um, you know, right now we have to focus on supporting this person here. It's I've kind of lost, I've kind of gone off on my tangent, but I think the thing that we forget is those two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are completely inclusive, right? In order to be a good manager, you ha- your team has to know that you care about them. You don't have to memorize everything that's happening in their lives, but it's a really good idea if you know the name of their cat, right? It's really great if you know the name of their children and you ask about their children every now and then. Um, We as managers, we forget that our job, it's not about us. Our job is to care about and think about and motivate them. So when I come in on a, off of a weekend, I don't talk about my weekend to my employees. I ask my employees how their weekend was. What did you do? How did you do it? Oh my gosh, you said you were going to go that thing on Saturday. Like I have notes that I keep on my employees so I can remember what it is that they said they were going to do so I can ask. Building those relationships is so important in motivating because when you see your employee not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you get to bring them in. You've built this trust with them and you get to go, Hey, AJ, what's going on? You know, this last four, the last three reports you sent to me, you've had a couple grammatical errors. There's some factual errors. That's not like you. What's going on? And then AJ reveals, you know, his girlfriend just left him, and you go, "Oh, all right, AJ. Look, this is
0: not the first time."
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're like AJ. What's
0: going on? This is not the first. Yeah, heard about this before. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So then you and AJ can sort of brainstorm and figure out a way to help AJ through this difficult time, so that he can make sure he doesn't he doesn't make those errors in those reports. Um. So that's. That's what I'm talking about. It's, it's you, that's empathy. You're showing the empathy for AJ, for AJ. And you know, AJ, you got to get your act together and stop taking, picking, picking these kind of people that you just used to partner with. And, and then you also get AJ, AJ now knows that you care about him and now he wants to do a better job. So you brainstorm with AJ what the job is. So you're making AJ more productive, Simply by asking him what's going on. Instead of bringing him in and saying, AJ, these reports are not up to par. I don't know what's happening in your life, but you're not doing the job that I expect you to do. And that is not okay. AJ leaves pissed. AJ leaves feeling full of shame. AJ is now going to go and get into another relationship to hide from all those feelings. That's not going to do any good for him either. So I think that those two things are mutually inclusive all the time.
0: Right. Right in this new world, in 2023, when we are... You know, organizations keep on talking about competitive intelligence. They also talk about, you know, now there is so much of talk about artificial intelligence in 2023. Is it time that organizations will need to include emotional intelligence in their managers to understand more about humans and less about machines? What would you like to tell about this situation? What you'd like to tell... Organizations?
1: It was time five years ago. You know, it was time 10 years ago. I think that we have moved, you know, we've moved slowly from an industrial revolution to a knowledge revolution. And as a result, We are relying on people to do things in a much, we're relying, we're relying on people to use their brains at a much higher capacity than we have before. It doesn't take a lot, you know, when we were building cars in the 1930s, you didn't have to be particularly smart to know that this doohickey goes into this doohickey. Now our knowledge workers not even, not, not only need to know that they need to design the machine so that that doohickey goes into this doohickey and they have to start thinking about, okay, if the machine breaks down and then what else happens down the line and then if this person doesn't do that then how do we fix it so they need to start thinking about all these different things that happen it's just time and i think that organizations are looking for strategies to help to up level their in, their managers employ and you know emotional intelligence and that's a hard lift and it's a scary lift and it's and it's nebulous. there's no particular it grows, it changes, it morphs. It depends directly on the manager and where they are with their emotional intelligence. But if organizations want to survive and want to continue to grow, especially when wellness and mental health are key and front and most important, and recruiting is extremely difficult right now. You as an organization need to be able to talk about how you are helping your managers grow and learn and become emotionally intelligent to, to hot so that when that new person comes in, they feel like they're coming into a place that not only cares about them, but will also support their manager and help their manager do a better job, which will help their manager manage them. So I think it's, it's just time. Um, I think that it's it's a hard lift. Um, I think it's a scary lift. Most people don't know what to do, but I think honestly, you know what I'm doing is is the beginning of that because there's nothing that I'm teaching that a manager can't use in other situations. There's nothing that I'm teaching. You don't have you don't have to have an employee with cancer. You don't have to have an employee who died. You don't have to have an employee who's dealing with loss. You don't have to have an employee who's dealing with depression, and you can still use every single one of these strategies to support your team and and have them be more empathetic and more productive at the same time.
0: Right, Kim, okay, and it's certainly time to at least read 100 Acts of Love. Where do they find yeah. this book? How they can connect with you?
1: So before I mentioned, you know, the number one thing never to say, and there were four other things not to say. So you can go to my website at 100 Love.com, and that's the number 100, um, backslash what not to To say. So very simple 100actsoflove.com. What not to say, no capitals, no spaces. And you can download the free download that's there that'll give you the four other things never to say to anybody and what to say instead. And I'm telling you, the number one thing you can do is to make sure you say something. So, so, so important. Um, You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I do LinkedIn Lives every single Thursday. If you have a question about an employee and you're not sure what to do or, or what to say, DM me and I will actually respond via LinkedIn Live. I get questions all the time from managers. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. This employee, I said, you know, the, the number one thing that managers say that's real. The number two thing that managers say that's not helpful is they say take all the time you need. Well, that's a wide open stance. You don't want to say that to your employee who's dealing with crisis right now. You want to give them some time, some time limits. Um, so I get questions like that all the time. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn. The other place you can find me, of course, is on Instagram. I'm at 100 acts of love on Instagram. I I'm just, I show up on Instagram a lot. So those are the places. I think the one message I have and I know, and then I think the one message I have for everybody who is listening to this broadcast right now, I am not here because I was super strong and able to get through my husband's death. I am here because I was weak and tired and terrified and people kept showing up and helping. I stand on the foundation of all those who supported us during that when my husband had cancer and after he died and then all those who continued to support me. They showed up because they realized that they had to do something. They realized that, that they mattered. They mattered to me. And it wasn't like they said, oh, I matter to Kim and I'm going to go do something. They simply said, I really care about her, her husband, her children. I need to do something What I do matters. And that's what I want people to know is what you do matters. You matter. You are so important. And maybe you're not the person who's going to bring the meals. And maybe you're not the person who's going to pick up the vomiting kid from school. And maybe you're not the person who's going to do the agenda every week for that meeting. But the relationship you have, no matter what that relationship is with the person who's dealing with their loss, they need you. They need you. You really matter, so please get past the fear, have the courage, and show up. It makes a huge difference for you, for them, and for you.
0: Thank you, Kim. This is a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much indeed.
1: Thank you, AJ.